Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to the FT World Podcast. I'm Daniel Dombey. This week, Turkey's Recep Tayyip Erdogan marked up what, by any account, is a momentous triumph, securing a full term as Turkey's first executive president and getting a majority, a working majority, in parliament. This was despite a hard-fought campaign in which his opposition rival seemed to electrify voters but failed to secure the runoff that would test Mr Erdogan as rarely before. So what does this mean for a strategically vital country that is moving, critics say, in an increasingly authoritarian direction and has shown ever greater signs of tension with the US and other traditional allies in the West? I'm joined on the telephone by Laura Patel, our anchor correspondent. Laura, why was this election so important? It was incredibly important because it was seen by everybody on both sides as a crossroads. For Recep Tayyip Erdogan, it was the kind of last obstacle to him reaching this powerful new presidential system that he has been dreaming of creating and and heading for a very long time. And for his opponents, who make up roughly half of the country, it was the kind of last chance to stop him, they felt, from getting ever more power and possibly being unassailable. You know, on the opposition side, there's a lot of very depressed people here this week who feel that they've missed their opportunity to stop him. Mr Erdogan has been keen on becoming an executive president for a decade or more. This was an idea that he was flirting with well back in the uh, early years of his century. But he held off becoming president, then he finally acceded to that role. And last year he pushed through these constitutional changes which massively expand the role of president, making him the unquestioned head of government, allying him with a party as was forbidden before, and really giving him enormous powers of appointment throughout the Turkish system. So in that sense, Mr Erdogan has this position that he's craved for a long time. But I guess some people would say this just means that the rules have caught up with reality. Mr Erdogan has been a massively powerful figure for years and years and years. He's been governing under state of emergency rules that have given him the power of decree for the last couple of years in any case. So isn't this just a case of um, the law now reflecting what's been the reality of Turkey for some time, that there's one man that matters and that's Recep Tayyip Erdogan? Yeah, I think that to a large extent that's true. You know, many of the powers that are bestowed on him under the new system, such as appointing more members of the judiciary, he already had a lot of sway over the judiciary. Um, although I do think there are things, new things about the system that are very significant, like I'm really waiting with bated breath to see what he does with his powers to hire and fire not just his cabinet but also senior civil servants. He's going to be able to kind of do a US-style system of political appointments where he can bring in outsiders to his government. And I know that a lot of civil servants, senior people in the bureaucracy, are quite worried. They don't know what's going to happen to their jobs. We don't know if there's going to be like a kind of fresh purge, if you like, of people from the civil service. 
And, you know, in je- more broadly, we don't really know what he's going to do with this executive presidency. You know, Erdogan spent perhaps the first decade of his time in office fighting a system that was against him and turning it to his own advantage and, and making sure that it was loyal to him. And now that he's really reached that point, I think we can say with this presidential system that he will have reached that point. We don't fully know what he's going to do with it. You know, some people say Erdogan is an arch-pragmatist. You know, he can make huge U-turns and... Some people question whether he could perform some enormous U-turn and soften his approach, lift the state of emergency that's been in place for the last two years, relax a little now. I have to say that I find that slightly hard to believe, judging by his past behaviour. But the point with him is that he always keeps us guessing. We never know. And let's talk about the election itself, because the opposition, as you said, were enormously dismayed. And there had been these huge rallies for the opposition candidate, Muharrem Inje, and people often find it very, very difficult to believe that Erdogan's won again after he fought a fairly lacklustre campaign in which he made some bizarre promises about tea shops which would serve cakes to people free and said at one point that before he took power, Turkey was in such a ramshackle state that the dogs drew the ambulances. One of the things that strikes me is that this reflects just how polarised Turkey is. Very many Erdogan supporters don't have any friends who are not Erdogan supporters and the inverse is absolutely true. And yet, despite the experience of many middle-class liberal Turks, Surely there's a huge cohort of people that associate him with empowerment, with freedom, with the ability of headscarf women to have jobs in public service or to go to university, with roads and hospitals, and all of these things that they see the country's old secular order that presided over most of the last century as not providing. Do you think this is just a case of an election that surprised half a population because that population doesn't talk to the other half? Yeah, I mean, I think everything that you say there is true. Like, it's an incredibly polarised society. Adon has millions of supporters. Some of them adore him personally and see him as this kind of bold, brave, ambitious guy who stands up for Turkey and makes Turkey more important on the world stage. He criticises Israel, he criticises the US and the EU and says, we don't care what you say, we're Turkey, we're a big and important country and that makes them feel proud. Others, you know, it's much more about the the impact on their daily life. Like you said, hospital services have have improved hugely over the last 16 years. So has infrastructure and transport and all sorts of other things that affect people's day-to-day life. And people feel very grateful to him for that. There's also the dimension of tribalism that you mentioned. Like some of the opposition parties have such tainted legacies in the mind of people here that they just can't trust them. But, I mean, obviously we need to say at the same time that Although Turkey still has a kind of competitive democracy, at the same time the conditions were very, very skewed in President Erdogan's favour. And I think that many voters might not really have had the chance to properly hear the opposition arguments. You know, I met voters on the campaign trail who were AKP supporters who like almost knew nothing about Muharrem Inje, this kind of energetic rival candidate that you mentioned, or all that they'd heard was things that Erdogan had said about him, like They claimed that he wanted to destroy all the bridges and tunnels and things that Erdogan had built. And one guy said to me, you know, why why would you want to destroy all those things? We should be building more of them. And, you know, so I think in a country where the media is so, so heavily skewed in Erdogan's favour, you know, he gets hours and hours of airtime compared to the opposition. It wasn't really a level playing field in that sense. And yet, at the same time, you know, it wasn't actually a brilliant result for Erdogan. His, the vote for his party, the AKP, fell seven points down to 42%, and that's something he acknowledged 
in his victory speech where he said, we've heard your message and we're going to fix the problems. And the reason really that he got over the line is the support of this small ultranationalist party that he's made a kind of unofficial alliance with. And actually without them, if they hadn't beaten expectations and got 11% as they did, he would really have been in trouble. He would have been without a majority in Parliament and, and maybe he would have been forced into a second round. Or at least that's the way it looks from the numbers. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I was in Turkey before you. I was the FT's correspondent there for four years until 2015. And in retrospect, it was a bit of a foretaste of the populist wave that we saw elsewhere in Europe and across the world. I mean, Mr. Erdogan has traded for years in the kind of enemies of a people rhetoric. We've seen the press there really kind of turn against, you know, what it sees as saboteurs. This very, very kind of polarised society, sometimes all sorts of conspiracy theories being pushed, a real kind of anger sometimes at the rest of the world. It seemed to me to prefigure a little bit of the um, debate elsewhere. And what's interesting, it seems to me, in Turkey, of course, now is that the media landscape is so constrained, isn't it, that really outside a few opposition outlets, there isn't really much place for people like Muharrem Ince or even more Meral Akşener, one of the nationalist candidates, to get any kind of airtime. So in that sense, I think Turkey is really interesting beyond its strategic importance because it gives us a flavour of this kind of populist politics. But on the strategic importance, you talked about this smaller ultra-nationalist party, the MHP, and obviously they now are going to be providing parliamentary support for Mr Erdogan. They're very sceptical about the Kurds in Turkey. They're very sceptical about the peace process. They're opposed to the peace process that existed in the past with those Kurds. How do you think that's going to play out in terms of the foreign policy of Turkey? If Turkey's got tough on the Kurds within Turkey... What does that mean for the Kurds on its border, particularly in Syria, who are allies of the West and of the US in particular in Syria and against, in effect, um, Russia? Yeah, I mean, the United States support for Kurdish militias in northern Syria has been the biggest obstacle in a quite tense relationship between the US and Turkey in the last few years. And the US-Turkey relationship is kind of at its worst point that it has been in decades. And the US and Turkey have been trying to solve particularly this northern Syria problem by uh, finding ways to work together in some northern towns to try and get rid of this group, the YPG, or it's particularly in this place called Manbij, at the strategic town near Turkey's border, where Turkey was very unhappy with them being there. And it looked like we were kind of getting to a point where the two sides had reached a compromise the problem is, is that this group, the YPG, still control a large part of northern Syria. They were used by the US in the fight against ISIS, and so they're a very important ally to the US. But Turkey sees them as a, a terror group that provides a kind of existential threat right on its border. And so we can only really imagine that if, if Erdogan is going to rely on the MHP, as it seems that he's going to have to, maybe he won't tolerate them being there in this kind of northeastern patch of Syria, and that could become a huge sticking point between Turkey and the US at a time when there are all these other tensions as well. And does Mr Erdogan's victory and his alliance with the MHP set Turkey off on a trajectory more towards Russia, increase the chasm between Turkey and the EU and the US? Or is this stuff overblown? Turkey is just a partner with which the EU has to do business. It's part of NATO and therefore the US has to continue doing business with it. How do you see the strategic implications of this victory and Turkey's likely path for the next five years or so? 
On the EU, I do kind of wonder how much worse it can really get, seeing as the EU got very upset about all the human rights abuses that were happening in the wake of the coup attempt two years ago. They've been through these phases of big, angry rows, and the kind of sense of the mood that I get from European diplomats here in Ankara is that they are looking for a more kind of transactional relationship with Turkey. Like Both sides have been trying to shout at each other a bit less, well, no progress is going to be made on Turkey's EU membership ambitions. Probably no progress is going to be made on other things that Turkey wants, like an upgrade of the customs union that it has with the EU. But there is the sense that they have to work together, because one of the things that has been working, for example, is the EU-Turkey refugee deal that is in place to support Turkey's 3.5 million Syrian refugees. And, you know, the EU, which felt like it was swamped a couple of years ago in the middle of all these people flooding towards Europe, they're desperate, frankly, for Syrian refugees to stay in Turkey. Although what the MHP decides it wants to do about them is another interesting question because they are, as ultranationalists, pretty hostile to the presence of Syrian refugees. And I think it was one of the big issues of the campaign is that it's a lot of people here and people have started to feel quite unhappy about, about the pressure they're putting on services. So I do think that could be one of the big sticking points. In terms of the relationship with the US... I think the worry is that that has further to fall. It could yet get worse because there are so many different problems. It's not just the issue of US support for Kurdish forces in Syria. It's the fact that Fethullah Gulen, who's accused of masterminding the 2016 coup attempt, is in the US. There is an ongoing issue of Turkey's violation of US sanctions on Iran, which could lead to a big bank fine on the Turkish state-owned bank, Halk Bank. There's a US pastor in a jail in western Turkey. He's been there for a year and a half. There's the fact that Turkey is considering buying an S-400 air defence system from Moscow. Well, it's supposed to be delivered next year, in fact. Um, so there are all these problems, and it's hard to see how the insertion of a very hawkish ultranationalist into decision-making in Turkey is really going to help that situation. I would say the only thing that we don't know is how important he really is going to be at this stage or how much influence he's really going to have. Erdogan might need the MHP votes in the Turkish parliament, but it is a question of debate how much he needs this parliament under the new system, whether or not he can just override them. But, you know, we, we know that during the campaign Erdogan was concerned about having a parliamentary majority. He said that he wanted his supporters to vote for him in parliamentary elections, not just the presidential ones, which kind of suggests to me that he does think it's important that, that not having control of parliament would be a roadblock or could cause delays to him. So if that's the case, that does mean that he's going to need the MHP votes in parliament to make up the numbers, and he's going to have to listen to Devlet Bajli, the leader of the MHP, maybe give in to some of his demands on certain policies, perhaps give him and other senior members of his party key posts or control of certain ministries. And we're going to have to see how that pans out and what kind of agreement they reach. And very briefly, what does this mean for the economy? In fact, the Turkish economy has proved very resilient. It's been growing at a healthy clip. It's had for years what many people say is a problem with large amounts of corporate debt in foreign currencies and indeed a very large current account deficit. But it's got away with it till now. Do you think that things are going to be any different in, in the future or do you think that uh, Mr Erdogan's going to keep on with quite grandiloquent rhetoric, sometimes railing against interest rates and things like that, but ultimately enough of a pragmatist to keep this show on the road? 
I think that the crucial thing, like what you just said, is that you know so far, like Turkey's got away with it and has been resilient. But the point that a lot of economists make is that the global conditions are changing. In the years after the financial crisis, there was a lot of money sloshing around the world, and Turkey and other emerging markets benefited from it. But now those tides are kind of changing and going back the other way, and Turkey is having to do things like hike its interest rates to try and keep attracting. Uh, the capital that it needs to fund this very debt-laden economy that it has. And investors are getting a bit jittery about Erdogan and some of his slightly less conventional views, shall we say, on economic management. And they're worried that he really, he loves growth. I mean, all politicians love growth, um, but you know what most economists want is they want the economy to slow down a bit so that it can rebalance. It's got inflation of 12%, this wide current account deficit that you mentioned, and they say that it needs to slow down rebalance to avoid a hard landing. And the, the fear that many people have is that Erdogan, especially now that he's kind of unleashed, that he won't listen to people who are saying that to him, that he'll, he'll lock his eyes on March 2019 local elections and think he has to keep spending to keep the voters happy, keep the economy going. So a very, very key test is going to be to see who he appoints to, to run his economic team now that he can choose anybody he likes. You know, there's been some speculation that he could bring in, say, a, a businessman. I think markets will be very, very nervous. They'll want to see somebody appointed who is considered sensible, not because the person per se matters, but they will want a signal that Erdogan is going to continue to be a pragmatist because he has been pragmatic. We saw during the election campaign that the lira went into freefall at one point and there was this very tense standoff between Erdogan and the central bank. Erdogan doesn't like high interest rates because he thinks they get in the way of growth. But in the end, in the middle of the campaign, the central bank hiked interest rates three times, totaling 500 basis points. So there is that pragmatic streak there, ultimately. He knows that the economy is important, that it underpins the support of his party. And so the hope is that he continues to show that pragmatic streak and allows a period of rebalancing and reform. And finally, just to put you on the spot, if I had to ask you, and this of course is a completely unreasonable question, but which of three options do you think is going to be the case? Do you think this was the last hurrah of a failing candidate who was tired, who only managed to get across the line with help from the MHP, and that this shows that Erdogan is not the political force he was? Or do you think that after this Erdogan has so much power that there won't be really contested elections like this in the future? Or finally, do you think it's somewhere in between the two and that Turkish democracy is still quite strong, as shown by um, the very high turnout of the um, electorate, which came out in above 80% for these polls. I think Erdogan is more unassailable now. I think it's going to be harder for the opposition to bring him down, especially if the next election is not until five years away. But I do think this is Turkey, as you and I know from covering this place for a few years between us, like, kind of anything can happen here. I mean... There's been a lot of energy and excitement around the opposition. There's some speculation now that Muharrem Ince, this candidate who did quite well, really, um, that he might start his own new movement or that he might wrestle control of his party from the, the leader who insists on staying there. So I think we don't know. Great. Well, that's it for this week. Many thanks to Laura Patel in Ankara. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. 
Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.